Hello, hello, and thank you for joining me for another episode today on Deep Dive into Practice. Uh, my microphones are going a little bit wonky, so I'm trying headsets today. We will see how it works out. Uh, today, I really wanted to start focusing on some of the parent traps that we fall into. I recently started doing webinars for professionals to avoid some of the common mistakes that we make as professionals that might stall our kiddos' um, progress with anxiety or might actually even make their anxiety worse. Um, if you want to check out any upcoming webinars or just hear in on some of the things that we're doing, definitely join my mailing list at corulearninginstitute.ca. would love to inform you on all the events coming up. And if ever you have any questions, that would be the best place to reach me as well. But like I said, I really want to focus on those traps that parents fall into. And I don't want anyone to feel bad if you happen to be a parent by any chance at all. Uh, it's never my intention. It's never to make anyone feel bad. But it is really important that we know what we're doing because oftentimes we're very well-meaning and we want to jump in and we want to help make our kids feel better. But we just don't realize that we might inadvertently be making them worse off. And I think as professionals, we need to know what the parent traps are so we can be educating them as well as what we need to be doing because a lot of parents already feel so much guilt. I always say, you know, here's your baby and here's five pounds of guilt that's compounded daily for the rest of your life. So, you know, we don't want to add any more, but it's really important that they do know how they might be maintaining anxiety. And really, I'm not about the whys. Why is my kiddo anxious? We might never know why your kiddo is anxious. There's so many different reasons, but we do need to help educate parents that, you know, there might be things, though, that are maintaining that anxiety. So we want to make sure that they know that. I mean, ignorance is a bliss, but <laughs> if we're going to help these kiddos, we want to make sure everyone's involved. It's not just the kiddo's job to be able to make the changes that they need. So, you know, this isn't meant to, when we're educating parents, it's never to make them feel bad. So we want to make sure that we're really gentle with them and how we're actually bringing up the discussions in the first place. It's just really a collaboration to talk about, well, these are some of the common traps that parents fall into and parents can start identifying perhaps some of the things that they are doing as well. So the point really is to think, you know, what might we need to be doing differently that could be contributing to anxiety? So I think that that's really important because a lot of the things that we're doing might inadvertently be making kids worse off. So, you know, it's important that we are supporting our kids the best we can. It's just doing a little bit better every single day, you know, a little bit better than we just did yesterday. The first most important major trap that we need to start thinking about is how the adults in a child's life is modeling their own anxious behaviors because kids watch and learn from the adults around them. So it's parents, but also thinking about teachers. I know with COVID, lots of teachers are under a lot of stress too. And so kids are rushed in the morning and they go to school and, and they're teachers now stressed and then they come home and their parents are stressed at the end of the day. So we really need to be careful on how anxiety is being modeled in all of the adults, important adults in a kiddo's life. And when we look at stress, I mean, it's contagious and stress is a major contributing factor to anxiety, but especially for our kiddos. So there's really interesting research. One of the ones that I find fascinating is where the researchers, they had moms with their 12 to 14 month old babies, and then they split everyone into two groups. And first they took stress related baselines when the moms were calm and content they were playing with their babies and then the moms had to leave their babies with someone who was comfortable with the baby so the babies weren't distraught at all it was someone that they knew and loved so they were still happy and playing and the moms just all they had to do was go do a two-minute uh, speech 
about their strengths. Already pretty stress, <laughs> stressful when you have to go in front of a group of people and talk about your strengths. And then there was a Q&A session afterwards. So one group of, of, of those moms received positive feedback from the panel who were listening to them, and the other group received negative feedback from the panel. So then the moms were then reunited with their babies, and those infants were immediately affected by their mom's stress. So the researchers saw that the baby's heart rate, it changed, and not only did it change, it actually mirrored their moms. And then even as a baby, we can see that they're picking up all of their parents' stress cues, their facial cues, their posture, their, their tone of voice, and even their odor, all of these things that are you know, even though the moms are trying to come back, you know, baby, she's feeling a lot of stress and the babies can feel that. So we can try to act calm, but if we're stressed and we're not getting enough sleep and we've got a lot on our plate and we're really frustrated and losing our patience, I mean, our kids are going to see that. It's, it's even if we're trying to act calm and it's okay, nothing's wrong. I mean, kids can pick up on all of that, right? And, and oftentimes even, you know, unfortunately we tend to overreact at home. So that's a major piece that we need to start looking at because I know, you know, parents will always eye roll. I know I'm supposed to put on my own oxygen mask before my kids. We're hearing it all the time, but it really is true. And I'm always saying if, you know, parents are doing good, their kids are probably doing pretty good too. But if parents are anxious and stressed, well, you know, we might see a mirror of that in their kiddos. But there's other traps. This is the next one I'm going to talk about is one of the ones that I fall into still see even as an expert I know this stuff and I still fall into the trap but um, I'm an amazing parent that I love to pull pranks I'm a bit of a, a jokester and so I especially love pranks that terrify my children. <laughs> so hiding and jumping out in places or just guess what? Here's a list of all the needles that you need to get, all the vaccinations you need to get. We actually did that with my daughter and she just burst into tears. It was actually a list of the ones she already had. Um, and so, you know, now she's terrified of needles. So we got to be careful with some of those sorts of jokes that we're pulling on our kiddos. I just actually worked with a one kind of made me feel a little bit better. I worked with a little girl just earlier this week and she's like, I hate hide and seek. I will never play hide and seek. And all kids want to do is play hide and seek. I'm like, dude, hide and seek is the best thing ever. Like I love playing hide and seek at home. But the reason why she doesn't is because once her mom had hit on her and when she went looking for her mom, her mom was like, boo, and scared the little girl quite severely. And now she hates hide and seek. So, you know, I think that it's not just a matter of not playing hide and seek and not playing jokes, but we want to sort of build a tolerance. And now all of a sudden, hide and seek is this big, scary thing that they're not playing anymore because the little girl's like, no, I can't do it. And by not playing it, we're kind of reinforcing that story that you're right, you can't do it. So we got to be really careful. And I'll be talking about some of those as well. We also use catastrophic language where we provide safety info, which is really important, right? So we might say, hey, kiddo, remember to lock the door behind me, right? And, and just don't open it if, if anybody comes. Or, hey, kiddo, make sure you put your seatbelt on. Those are, you know, that's good safety information. But what we end up doing is we add on information about what the worst case scenario could be if they don't follow that safety info. So don't open the door because someone's going to come and steal all our stuff and probably snatch you up too, right? Or you better put on your um, seatbelt because otherwise we might 
get into a car accident and you're going to go flying through the windshield. And then kids are like, <gasps> right? And it's that extra information that they don't necessarily need. Our words are enormously influential on our kids. So we really do need to be careful about that. And sometimes it's not even big sentences or words. It's just our... <sighs> you know, the little eeks, our little watch outs. Oh, you're too high. Be careful. Oh, slow down a little bit, right? All of those little things are so anxiety provoking. Even just think of yourself if you're driving and someone's like, ee, 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 and you're like, what? Right? You get angry, but it's probably because you've got a little bit of a startle as well. So I know as parents, you know, their goals is to protect their kids, to minimize harms, to minimize risk, right? But what ends up happening is that kids, everything becomes anxiety provoking and they don't learn that they can take any risks at all, right? And they stop taking any risks. Oh, I better not use that word. I don't know how to spell it. That's really how easily things generalize when we're talking about anxiety. So us telling them to be careful all the time, that can really strengthen that anxiety. And even worse, it's telling them that they can't do anything on their own, which is kind of what anxiety is all about. Uh, can you guess what the most dangerous word in our language is? It's the word no. No is very anxiety provoking. And I will be doing a future episode on the difference between anxiety and ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. Uh, but oftentimes when we feel threatened, you know, that's really anxiety. It might come out as a defiant no back or you know, just not liking that denied requests. And I see lots of kiddos who get overly upset with denied requests. They're told no, that's very stressful for them. That's very anxiety provoking for them. So I think that that's really important to think about that it, um, when we say no, it's increasing the stress hormones in our kiddos brains, but also in our own as well. So those stress hormones are released for, for everybody. So we really need to focus on what we're saying no to. That's gonna be really important. Another trap is being too strict and kids just never feeling like they're ever successful. They're never good enough, you know, and it doesn't have to go to this extreme, you know, in terms of you got 98% of your test. What happened to the other two? Maybe there's those kind of strictness, but even just the other day, oh, what are my girls doing? I just remember oh, I think my daughter was cleaning the bathroom. That's what it was. Yay. I'm just like, yay. She cleaned the bathroom. Hip, hip, hooray. I don't care what it looks like. She was in there for a good chunk of time. I, it smells clean. I could hear her scrubbing. I am happy. But my husband went in and was like, kiddo, get back in here. You missed this and you missed this. And I remember my dad was like that too. I, we had the really plush carpet, you know, in the 80s, the really plush carpet that you could see the vacuum lines. And my dad, I would vacuum. I would spend my whole Saturday morning vacuuming. My dad would come in and see there's footsteps or, you know, the lines aren't perfect. I can't see those lines. That's really anxiety provoking. We're always feeling like I have to do things really perfectly. And then you've got a jerk brother like I had who just like purposely would come and shuffle his feet and mess up all the lines anyway. But that's a whole other topic. Um we can be overly critical or we're always praising our kiddos for being the smartest or for being the best on the team or just, you know, being the best and always winning. Or if they lose the game, you know, oftentimes we'll downplay the game. You know, you played awesome. Just D wasn't on their game today or the goalie just, you know, wasn't feeling good. We're giving them a reason why they should have won. All of those things can really contribute to anxiety. And I find what a huge maintaining factor when it comes to stress and anxiety is our beliefs about things. 
lessons. And especially, you know, when we're pressuring our kids around their homework and grades and, and those kinds of things, we really need to watch out for this shared delusion because shared delusions really add to our stress and anxiety. And one of the greatest, biggest, you know, shared delusions that we have is that our kids need to get really good grades so that they can get into the top university so that they can have a better life, right? So, so many of us believe that they, they have to get into the top university so that they can get the best job, you know, most fantastic job in the world, because that's what's going to make them happy. That's what's going to give them a good life. But that really isn't true. So we need to be careful. And I think a lot of us as parents start getting really anxious because we want our kids to do really well, but that's creating, you know, anxiety for them as well. And it's maybe not on, you know, accurate sort of beliefs as well. And if we're successful, I mean, if you're a parent as well as a professional, you probably have been successful in school and and you've got higher education and you've got higher standards for academics. So you can think about, you know, your own kids. And I find that children's academics, especially, there's just so much pressure. That's often stressing us out as parents, but that's directly stressing them out as well. And we know that there's so many kids who are feeling this need to achieve to this really high level. And I know that that's something I've never put on my girls, but they still, it's still a societal thing. And I think schools are set up still to get the high grades because it's always the people who have the top grades who are getting all of the awards, right? And all of the recognition. So society is unfortunately built that way. But, you know, with this pressure to achieve, they're not actually feeling any joy. And that's the unfortunate thing. There's a lot of kids who are winning all of these top academic awards, but they're not feeling any joy. And that's just really making them susceptible to anxiety and depression. I just think of my own when I was doing my doctoral defense, there was no joy afterwards. You know, even when they came out after a little bit, they deliberated and they came out and said, congratulations, doctor. And I bawled, not out of happiness. It was just such a stressful experience. And I never, like people wanted to go out and celebrate. And I literally just wanted to go home and and cry. I wasn't enjoying that. And that is true. I mean, I'm just one person, but researchers have really shown that that true. They're just not enjoying their successes that they have. So we really got to think about, you know, it's okay if our kids want to be achieving high and we want to, of course, support our kiddos, but at what cost? We always just need to think about that at what cost. And you also need to think, think about too, you know, and parents, especially if you see parents that you're working with who are stressing out about homework and things like that is, you know, always helping our kids with their homework, that might relieve our stress, but it's only making their stress worse. So we really need to think about that. Who are we actually helping here? I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier too, but rushing, rushing is super anxiety provoking. So we got to think about how we're leaving the house in the morning, especially kids and teens. If they're leaving the house rushed and anxious and they're just like, ah, I forgot my lunch and I, ah, I'm forgetting you know, adults are blah, 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 like, we got to be out the door in five minutes. Why haven't you done this? And it's just always a big fight. I mean, they've used up so much brain power. They're going to be going to school with half battery to be able to learn. It's going to affect their learning and it's only going to contribute to more of their anxiety and things like that anyway. So we need to be really careful. Sometimes that we push our kids too. I remember going to one of those toddler classes. It was like a Jimbery music class and they would have the big colorful parachute, right? And, and we would, you know, put it up in the air and then we had to go under and sit on it. We had to have like a big mushroom around us, a big tent. 
And I remember this little guy, he couldn't have been more than maybe two, maybe two, and was screaming. This was so terrifying. And the, the mom was like, stop crying, but it's going to be so much fun. Like, it's just going to be the best thing ever. But the fear was real for him, right? But we push and push. It's going to be so much fun. And meanwhile, so mom pushes him under and it's just so overwhelming because all the other kids are screaming. Some were crying, but some were like, you know, this is the best thing ever. And parents are like singing really loud. And now this thing is over top of him. It was terrifying. Um, even though the mom, you know, was telling him it's going to be fun and he's going to learn that he can't trust us because everyone's going to say it's so much fun, but he's in this state of terror. He could never actually realize that this is going to be so much fun. We kind of rationalize to our kids. It's not a big deal. It's going to be fun. Just get out there. So we need to be careful. Another top two is wanting to talk about whatever it is that they're anxious about. So, for example, if we've got kiddos with social anxiety, parents will often say, you know, especially if they're worrying about friends, who did you talk to with at lunch? Who did you sit with at recess? Or who did you go play with at recess? So we're asking all of these leading questions about who they were sitting with, who they were playing with, who were their friends. That contributes to their anxiety because then they start thinking, well, this obviously is important, right? They might not consciously, but we know it's contributing to their anxiety. Or we answer their questions. You know, where are you going to go after work? What time are you going to be home? Who are you going with? Can you text me? Can you call me? So we're answering all of those questions. But, you know, whenever we talk about it, that's that's what anxiety wants. You know, it, it wants information. It wants certainty. It wants comfort. And so if we're always talking about it, it's like, see, this obviously is a big deal because we're talking about it all the time. So talking about it is just making that anxiety worse. It makes it feel really important. So we want to avoid that. Um, same thing too when we reassure kids it's okay nothing bad is going to happen I'm going to be right here everything's going to be okay reassurance is a major problem that maintains anxiety and I will be talking about that in the future in in the next episode but it really you know kids are relying on us to feel better and anxiety wants them to feel better so they're always going to be seeking that reassurance but unfortunately you know they're not learning to do it for themselves so it becomes this compulsive behavior really and and I've actually actually seen OCD like behaviors develop right before my eyes through reassurance because it is a compulsive behavior. So we need to make sure that we are not feeding into that. Parents aren't feeding into it. Teachers aren't feeding into it. Right. So even if, you know, kids are like, hey, mom, can you just check under my bed? Make sure there's no monsters there. Oh, can you just make sure the doors are locked? Um, can you check my fever? I want to make sure I'm not going to get sick. Right. Or can you check my homework? Anything like that that you're reassuring them, it's never going to help them. Kids will never actually learn to feel better. Anxiety only worsens. All, all that really happens is that you're going to get exhausted and frustrated because you are doing the same routine day after day. You're fine. You're fine. No fever. No fever. You're fine. Right? So, so we kind of fall into those traps. The other thing is when we say things like, don't be ridiculous. There's no such thing as monsters. There's nothing under your bed. See? Or look in your closet. There's nothing there. But you got to remember, it's real for them. And when that amygdala is triggered, the blood flow from their rational thinking brain, it's going to their motor cortex. So they're not even listening anyway. So they might go to bed, but it's not going to make that fear go away. And now they might feel like a big baby, right? And they might feel like you don't want to listen 
and that you're not a safe person to listen to or or what's wrong with me like i don't even know what fear is because we're telling them they're wrong there could be a whole host of different reasons that they come up with in their head when we're telling them you know don't worry about it and like i said when that brain stress kids can't see things from the same perspective because we're using our human prefrontal cortex to rationally think there's no such thing as monsters. But when that amygdala is triggered, it can't tell the difference between it's just a little bit dark and I don't want to be alone versus there is a monster who's going to eat me. So all the talking that we want to do, that's fantastic. But once the amygdala kicks in, it takes that rational thinking brain offline. They're in survival mode. So all of the talking that we're going to be doing, it's only going in one ear and out the other, literally, because they're not going to remember anything. And that goes with reassurances too. They're really not going to remember any of their reassurances. The brain isn't learning anything. They're just always going to stay in reactive mode. I kind of alluded to this earlier, too, where we ask too many why questions. Why do you feel like this? Where did this come from? Right? We're just spinning our wheels talking about it, which just makes anxiety feel really important. And that's how we kind of get sucked into anxiety, right? And then sometimes even this reverse hypnosis happens. So I remember where I was working with a girl and she was scared. She would crawl up every recess she would crawl up to the high monkey bars but she could never get down and she'd have a panic attack so we worked on that so i took her to the park and we're you know let's go climb the monkey bars everything is going to be fantastic but then she started having a panic attack up there even though we talked about the strategies and and everything that she was going to do and there was a second where i almost got sucked into the anxiety with her because i'm like What if she does fall? What if she, and it was because, you know, she's having a panic attack. And what if she just, you know, freaks out and loses her and breaks her arm. And I had sent mom away and it's so easy. Anxiety just sucks us in. So we got to make sure we're not getting sucked in, right? Especially because that amygdala, it really, you know, we might not have any idea why we're stressed. You know, a lot of kiddos might not be thinking or worrying about anything in particular. So the more we're trying to ask these why questions, you know, it doesn't necessarily help because they don't necessarily know. It's the amygdala's job to associate an emotional memory to different things. You know, so I've been scared of dogs my entire life until recently, but It was because of a memory, something that happened as a baby. I was bit by a dog. I don't consciously remember that, but my amygdala attaches that emotional memory to things. And so usually we've got these fear-based memories. So it could be the smell of something that can trigger the alarm and we have no idea. So asking those why questions isn't very helpful either. And we can't usually change whatever is causing the anxiety in the first place. And it's really hard to even identify exactly what it is and 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 kids don't necessarily know so it's not helpful to get stuck in those whys so whenever again we talk too much or ask too many questions we're just getting sucked into that anxiety another trap that we fall into is you know we're 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 blaming genetics you know you come by this anxiety honestly or it's a brain chemical imbalance which we know you know isn't a thing anymore But whenever we talk about genetics or brain chemicals or things like that, you know, and we said in the sense of permanency, then kids and teens especially start to believe there's nothing I can do about it. And that's really damaging, especially for our older kiddos and teens, because they will get mad at me when I tell them, hey, we can work on this. This is super easy. In a couple of sessions, you know, you're going to be on your way. And they're like, no, because they've created this identity around that anxiety. And it's so ingrained. It's become who they are. And it's so 
fixed for them and it becomes really hard to change. And oftentimes it's because they've heard their entire life, oh, she was an anxious baby, right? You know, everybody in her family is anxious, just always like that. So we need to be really careful. Uh, we also bubble wrap our kids. We do this a lot. There used to be the helicopter parents and then came along those lawnmower parents. But I heard recently the curling parents who are, you know, madly cleaning the ice, you know, every step of the way. But that really suffocates resilience. It really ingrains anxiety. Um, and we see spikes in anxiety and, and, and ingrained anxiety that can really be lifelong. So we need to be careful that we are not helicoptering and really doing things for our kiddos. And one of the things that I talk about is accommodations. And I see this, this isn't just a parent trap. This seems to be a society trap. And I see it in schools all the time as well. So if we look at synonyms for accommodations, we know for a lot of kids, accommodations can be helpful, you know, where we might need to modify things to help them with learning, for example. But when we talk about accommodation for anxiety, it usually means we're enabling anxiety. So a synonym for accommodation is enabling. We make it worse because we're giving anxiety exactly what it wants. It wants certainty. It wants comfort. And that's usually what a lot of the accommodations that we give kiddos are. And we do it all the time without even knowing. It's so subtle. It's okay, kiddo. I'm going to watch you swim. I'll just, I'll stay here for your whole swimming lesson right? Whenever they're putting up a fuss, when you're trying to get out the door to take them to swimming lessons, I'll be there the whole time. Or here, just one more hug before you head into school. Okay, one more kiss, kiddo. But these little things, they get worse. Now you need to do two hugs. And now you need to have someone meet you at the door at the school. And now, you know, you have to walk your child into the principal's office and, and someone has to hand off with you, you know, so that they can go to the classroom. Um, and so we just see these, these increasing accommodations. It's just growing and making anxiety worse. And in the classroom, maybe they've got whenever they're feeling anxious, they can take a break. That's really gonna make kids more anxious. So, you know, what ends up turning from what should be maybe a 10 minute bedtime routine could turn into an hour, two hour, three hour bedtime routine. What starts as missing, you know, one day of school here and there now turns into six months. My child has not entered school. So those accommodations, they're so sneaky and sneaky until we realize it's, you know, it's out of control. But by the time we realize it's out of control, it's out of control and it's really hard to fix. And then we're wondering how the heck did we get here in the first place? And it's usually these little accommodations that we're giving our kids. And I know it's so hard, you know, for, for parents because we want to be able to help our kids feel better. And so we want to make sure we're talking to parents in a way that they can really take up this message. So I'm always saying things like anything you do for your kiddo to make them feel better when it comes to anxiety, you're actually making their anxiety worse. And so we might say things like, let me make sure everything goes as planned, right? Um, let me check your homework. You know what, kiddo, I'll go talk to your teacher. I'll go talk to your coach. Call me in the middle of the night. You go to your sleepover. If you're getting scared, just call me in the middle of the night and I'll come pick you up. All of those things to give that certainty and reassurance to our kiddos. I mean, life isn't certain. Bad things happen. What if you can't pick them up? There's another emergency, right? And it's so great. You're so grateful that your kiddo's at a sleepover because now you have another emergency. Kids need to be able to handle different, you know, life emergencies because that's the way real life is. So I'm going to leave it there. 
Next episode, I am going to talk a little bit about why some of these accommodations and reassurances, these traps uh, can make it worse for our kiddos when it comes to anxiety. But for today, thank you for joining me and I will see you next time. Thank you.